Hello and welcome to the first of two Discovering Music programmes in which we'll be tracing the history of the musical serenade. Next week we'll be exploring serenades by Dvorak and Martinu, but this week we concentrate on one by the man who more than any other caused the serenade to become a serious instrumental form, Mozart. But first, what is a serenade? If I say, I'll serenade you, what do you expect? Probably a song of some sort, motivated by love, from me to you. Well, the custom of serenading in this manner began as long ago as the medieval era. The music had no particular form, except that it was invariably sung by one person accompanying himself on a portable instrument, a lute or guitar, for example, typically in the evening and often under a balcony or window. El rossignol's haut et éclair Leva sa voz et m'essotchard Joy haide la flor Et joy de me demi-dance major Dais tot as parsui de joy clais Joyce's <laughs> Her pike may ten carry us this no cor. Si feira heo, si no fos per pavor. Cag no vi cors melstaliat ni depens. An obstamar si atan graus By the late 17th century and the Baroque era, the serenade, in Italy primarily, therefore serenata, had amplified itself considerably into a kind of cantata performed out of doors in the evening with a mix of vocal and instrumental performers. The time of day is key. The sera of serenata means late in Latin and evening in Italian. In fact, these pieces were a hybrid somewhere between a cantata and an opera still primarily dramatic, but requiring minimal staging and without an identifiable plotline, I suppose most closely resembling something like the Baroque Oratorio. Composers who flourished in this form included Alessandro Stradella and Alessandro Scarlatti.
Part of Alessandro Scalati's serenata Notte Caro Domba, performed in that recording by Elizabeth Scholl, and Modo Antiquo, conducted by Federico Maria Sardelli. Well, by the mid-18th century, the serenade had spread as a popular form from Italy, through Austria, Germany and Bohemia, and had morphed again into a work for large but purely instrumental ensemble. It was still destined for outdoor consumption and was in multiple movements, just like its near relations, the divertimento and cassation. Now, this is where it can get really confusing. In reality, there's a lot of bleed between the serenade, divertimento and cassation. A composer like Mozart might call a piece divertimento when it's actually a near doppelganger of one of his serenades. In essence, though, by the classical era, the distinctions generally were that whereas a serenade was a grand piece written for big events and a large ensemble, a divertimento was a more modest affair written for a handful of players, in Haydn's case even just one soloist, to mark a more intimate family occasion, what we would now call chamber music. A cassation, on the other hand, well, let's explore the etymology. A cassation is first and foremost a legal term, making null and void. In Italian, cassare is to dismiss, to release. In French, casse means to break. Perhaps this was casual music where the movements could be jumbled into any order. It was used as a musical term mainly in Austria, Bohemia and Germany. And in German, a similar term, gesartim gehen, suggests performance in the streets. So perhaps a cassation could be anything like or between a serenade and a divertimento. As soon as you imagine music to be performed outdoors to underline great festivities, you think background music. A way for a composer to earn an honest crust, yes, but hardly an opportunity for compositional virtuosity. Step into the frame Mozart, who made the form as sophisticated in many ways as a symphony. It might be in the background, but you'd be forgiven for not chatting and just listening. His serenades always had more than four and up to ten movements, and invariably began and ended with a march. Famous examples include the Hafner Serenade, which he later turned into a symphony. It's no coincidence that in Peter Schaffer's play and Milos Forman's film version of Amadeus, it's to a Mozart serenade that Antonio Salieri listens, describing the way the instruments enter, entwine, fall away and re-emerge, uttering those memorable lines. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. It seemed to me that I was hearing the voice of God.
Let's explore one of Mozart's Salzburg serenades and its accompanying march in detail now, courtesy of a workshop I gave with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. Music that sounds like an overture. Music in the ceremonial style, complete with fanfare-like dotted rhythms and witty changes in instrumentation. That is Mozart's march, Kirchel 189, which we know, beyond any reasonable doubt, was written to be performed with his serenade in D major, Kirchel 185, both of which were composed in the summer of 1773. Now, this is music to be performed outdoors. It is incidental music, written for an occasion. Now, we know, again, fairly certainly, that this music was actually commissioned by the von Andretta family. He was a prominent court official in Salzburg. And it could have been that the music was commissioned either to celebrate his daughter's birthday or to celebrate his son's graduation from university. And I personally favour the latter possibility, because invariably what was known as final music was written every year to mark the graduation of students from the university in Salzburg. Now, we just played a section of the march, which, as I say, is indelibly linked to the serenade. The march was the music that would have been played by the musicians as they processed from one venue to another. They would then perform the serenade, for instance, outside the Archbishop's Palace, and then later on in the university precincts. Now, I mentioned the word incidental, this is incidental music, music to be played to some extent in the background. Well, of course, not in essence, because this is Mozart. Between the ages of 13 and 23, Mozart wrote nine serenades or cassations, so accomplished in style that, of course, they paved the way for the 19th century concert hall serenade. These pieces were very important to Mozart. He worked very hard at them because he knew that at least half of Salzburg would end up hearing them. Serenades of this time were in multiple movements, more than the usual four that you would have found in a late classical era symphony. Serenades such as the one that we're exploring today actually have seven movements, and there can be, on occasion, as many as nine. Now, in this work, we get an opening allegro, then an andante, then the third movement is another allegro, then the first of two minuets is movement number four, movement number five, andante grazioso, then the second minuet is movement number six, and then finally, the finale, an adagio, followed by a fast allegro. One obvious way in which Mozart's serenade were above the competition is how amazingly he's able to take his tune for a walk, set down basic core principles, an opening theme, and then find a multitude of different ways to treat that material. 
So if you take the main theme of the serenade's first movement, which is heard first unusually in the lower instruments of the string orchestra, the violas, the cellos, and the basses, and you hear it constantly repeated, it's almost like it's some sort of joke. Interestingly, the great Mozart scholar, amongst other things, Albert Einstein, believed that this music was probably written to celebrate a wedding, and he read into this melody that we'll play for you now a kind of erotic symbolism. As you hear, it does go up and down, up and down. It goes to show you can read an awful lot of what you like into any piece of music. Anyway, the harmony is quite basic, quite static, more so than in Mozart's symphonies of the period. So I suppose the leisurely characteristics are very suited to a kind of casual outdoor performance. That theme is almost palindronic. It certainly has something of a mesmerizing quality about it. It's interesting to note that Mozart actually wrote this serenade while he was on an extended period of time in Vienna in the early part of the year with his father looking for a job. And while they were there, they met a certain Dr. Mesmer, who was actually the man who invented hypnosis. So, like all Mozart's little melodic ideas, uh, they relate to that very simple scale-wise theme we just played. Like the first violins here. Or the viola, cellos and basses. so much to be made out of a scale. When it comes to fashioning copious melodies out of a basic shape, Mozart is about as prodigal as it gets. Then, a little later in the movement, he starts that same palindromic theme halfway through its inside out. Another variant follows hard on its heels in unison for the first time. As I said, in keeping with the idea that this was music to be performed outdoors, with marches either side of the serenade, obviously it was important that the musicians were able to stand to play. So in other words, you wouldn't find any cellos originally in this ensemble. Incidentally, in terms of double basses, there was apparently a certain type of quite small double bass that could actually be strapped to the body, allegedly very uncomfortable, but playable nonetheless. So you've got a string quartet, which is made up of first violins, second violins, violas, and double basses. And interestingly, in the Serenata Notturna, Mozart's great work composed just three years later, there's a solo quartet in there made up of violin one and two, viola and double bass. Although that piece was almost certainly written to be performed indoors. But it does give us a sense of what was expected. And so in the trio of this, the first of the two minuets in the serenade we're exploring, we get a lovely variant on that solo quartet makeup. But this time, it features solo flute, two violas and double bass, a full concertante. Have a listen.
Now, listen to how contrasted that is with the companion minuet in both instrumentation and style. And you notice a pair of flutes heard for the first time in this serenade, although, of course, we did have them in the march right at the top. Apparently, in Mozart's day, the oboe players would have doubled on flute, or rather, the flute players would have doubled on oboe. In other words, two musicians, four instruments. In the fifth movement of this serenade, you get a slowly flowing section, which is marked andante grazioso, Mozart starts with a lovely economical theme in the first violins, not a note in the scale wasted. He's still, of course, basically plundering his scalic idea from the first movement. But have a listen particularly to the chromatic rise of the first three notes in the top violin part. All the movements in this serenade, bar one, in fact, all Mozart serenades of this time, are in binary form. In other words, you get the first section, let's call it A, then a contrasting section where the material is worked over and developed, let's call that B, and then a return to section A again. And this form essentially led to what we now know of as sonata form. But listen to how Mozart takes the essence of his theme which we just played to you, and at the top of his B section, so-called, gives that chromatic rise to the violas, with a deliciously descending bass shifting the harmony underneath. character is totally altered. He also forces us to listen through the odd shocking change in tonality. For example, D major to B major, not next door chords. Let me just play them to you in isolation. Here's D major. And B major. So now from the upbeat to 60. Here it is. Another great example of how Mozart can use a theme to say one thing and then reboot it to say something completely different lies in the seventh movement, the finale of this serenade. This music starts with a stately adagio, in other words, very slow pacing, a bit like one of the first movements from Haydn's symphonies, a kind of mock heroism about it, although you could say that there's nothing ever mock about Mozart. But finales in symphonic literature, with a slow start, don't actually appear until Beethoven's time.
listen to what follows. Now that forms the basis of the Allegro theme to come, because fast music must surely follow this slow start. Then there's this figure drawn straight out of the beginning of that slow introduction. Let me just remind you, the first two crotchet beats of the Adagio. And here they are, super fast. So halfway through 27. And another tiny cell from the Adagio. It's up for exploitation, once again in the Allegro section. I can't leave this finale of Mozart's Serenade, Kirchel 185, without showing you a fantastic early example in Mozart of what is known as the Mannheim Crescendo. The Mannheim School was a group of German composers through the middle, towards the end, actually, of the 18th century, headed up by one Johann Stamitz. And they had various very brave and exciting new ideas that they wished to inject, particularly into symphonic form. But, of course, those ideas could also be used in other situations, like the serenade. And one of the hallmarks of their approach, their fiery ideas, was the use of what's known as an extended crescendo. In other words... It's a very exciting, slow, slow build. And a large part of what it makes it so exciting is that the bass line is stuck just on one note, providing, I suppose, a still point in a turning world as the harmony literally writhes above it. And when the climax arrives, it's explosive. Now, another inevitable feature of Mozart's Salzburg serenades, and indeed of Austrian serenades of this period in general, is that they feature a solo violin. The second movement of this serenade is marked andante, in other words, slow, but kind of flowing. The allegro that follows it, and the sixth movement, minuet and trio, all feature a solo violin. They also form the basis for Mozart's first violin concerto in B-flat, Kirchel 207, written in the same year. Now, this second movement we'll look at now features simple singing music, and its structure is identical to the opera arias of the time. A longish introduction where both themes are introduced in the home key before the solo voice enters. Here's the first theme. Now the second theme, more balletic as you'll hear, and still in the home key 
F major when you'd normally expect it in the dominant key, that's C major. But that's because all of this is an introduction to the aria proper when the solo violin enters with an answer to this introduction. Nick Whiting is our soloist. Can I give you a specific example of why this andante movement is so much like an opera aria of the day? The second subject, the second theme, is introduced now, by the way, in the correct key, C major out of F major, the dominant out of the tonic, by a long-held note in the solo violin riding pretty above the rest of the orchestra. We've heard this, this technique a thousand times from early Neapolitan arias through many by Handel and Mozart himself. You might remember, incidentally, in the two Virginum Corona from Mozart's Exultate Jubilate, that sacred aria written also in 1773, how the soprano suspends time over the top. We'll just play you an extract. Of course, if you know Mozart's Violin and Viola Sinfonia Concertante, you'll remember that the first entry of the Violin and Viola soloists is another excellent example, time standing still. They enter on serenely high notes and gradually fall off those notes and unfurl the theme. Incidentally, if you want more information about that particular piece, you can find our analysis of it on the web. Just go to Discovering Music and follow the links. Well, back to our serenade, time stands still for the solo violin as the second subject unfurls around it. vivid extra layer of characterization is created, as you can hear, through the deployment of a solo violin. Now, you find uh, that Austrian serenades of this period in general are a bit like violin concertos, albeit contained within larger structures. But there's even room for full concertantes, as we saw in the trio of the first minuet, groups of soloists. 
Now, the third movement of this serenade is also very much a violin concerto movement, and it's in rondo form, meaning simply rondo, meaning round, a theme that comes round and round multiple times. And because he chooses a rondo uh, structure for this movement, it's very much like so many finales of so many instrumental concertos. One theme reoccurring again and again with the solo violin's contributions forming contrasts and observations on that theme. So, what does the solo violin have to say about that? Well, he dives in with a new virtuosic texture. It's flashy, showy stuff. Of course, the orchestra pick up on the idea. And the rondo theme is back again. When it next appears, we hear another example of the violin sitting high and pretty, like we heard in the second movement, looking down comfortably at the tune beneath him. Mozart playing with us there, prolonging and prolonging before allowing the cadence, that is the end of the sentence. Bar two exceptions, all of Mozart's Salzburg serenades are based in D major. It's a nice bright key for the strings and an ideal festive key for the trumpets. We have to bear in mind is that both trumpets and horns of the day didn't have valves like they do now. They had what are known as crooks, different lengths of tubing which you had to apply to the instrument to make it work in a certain key. In fact, whilst this key of this piece overall is D major, there are also two movements in F major and one movement in A major. All three of those movements concern the horns as well as the D major movement. So they would have been marching around carrying no less than three crooks, I guess, on their shoulders. Well, for the second minuet, the sixth movement of our serenade, we're back in D major. And also, the oboes are back, having been replaced by the flutes in the fourth and fifth movements. The texture of this music makes it clear that it should be played a bit faster than the first minuet we had. I'll show you why. I'm just going to play you it more or less at the speed that we play the other minuet. just a little bit ploddy, isn't it? Let's play it now at the speed that we think it should go at.
So, if you're going to have two minuets and trios in one piece of music, invariably the case in these serenades, as I was saying, then make them different. And they're not just different in terms of feel or of speed. This second minuet has not one, but two trios, making a five-part structure, if you think about it. You get the minuet, first trio, reprise of the minuet, second trio, and final reprise of the minuet again. Well, in the first trio of this grouping, the solo violin makes his last appearance in the serenade, adding a delicate and plaintive minor key contrast to the whole. He's accompanied by two other solo violins and a solo viola, another little concertante group. talking as we were of melodic development, listen to how Mozart adds extra flesh to this idea, complete with trademark large leaps as he gathers momentum. What of the second trio? Mozart is so smart that he can, in creating a sunny major key contrast to the autumnal first trio we just heard, he can back-reference the earlier minuet, the fourth movement minuet. Remember how that began? And here it is, barely disguised in the second trio in the sixth movement. put it all together now. And so, ladies and gentlemen, even in a multi-movement work of this sort, Mozart creates continuity where it suits him, drawing the strands together. And as you'd expect, in its way, this serenade is every bit as accomplished as any late classical period symphony. Music to be played in the background? It's hard to imagine talking over the top of this. It demands full attention and absolutely paved the way for the so-called concert hall serenades of the 19th century. Any questions? Charles, in terms of the works that uh, we're discussing this evening, in the mix of things, how much was sheer innovation, how much was experimental, and how much was a mix of existing ideas, both of Mozart and his contemporaries? Well, I suppose the, the first and most important thing to say in response to that is that most music of the 18th century, and we're talking about the high-end music making and music creation of the latter part of the 18th century, was wonderfully organic. It wasn't like anyone came along necessarily with a very, very bold, brave, new, revolutionary concept which changed everything overnight. 
There's a great saying about Mozart, which is that he took the musical small change of the day and transformed it into a mint of gold. So it wasn't like he came in, which Beethoven did to some extent, and certainly other composers later did, Schoenberg being the most obvious example, and ripped up the rule book. That wasn't the way that he or any of his fellow Enlightenment artists worked. It was absolutely about taking the forms of the day and then expanding them, stretching them, pushing them as far as they could go. Uh, so I suppose that answers the question, really, that there was nothing, there's nothing in this serenade which is utterly revolutionary in terms of what had gone before it, but it does take things to a whole new place. Right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, together with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, leader and also violin soloist Nick Whiting, will perform now the march of Mozart, Kirchel 189, and then following that, the seven movements of the serenade, Kirchel 185, and then, in keeping with tradition, will perform the march once again, at the end. And just to give a sense of how that march might have felt when the band were marching along and there was no room for cellos, because obviously you can't play a cello and walk at the same time, when we play the march for the first time, we'll do it without the cellos. When we bring the march back at the end of the performance, we'll do it with the cellos, because they're here, they're lovely players, we might as well use them. <laughs> <laughs> 